Hello and welcome to Death of the Roman Republic post-series episode 6, Livia, First Empress of Rome. As I said in post-series episode 3, I'm doing a short series focusing on the women of the Roman world whose lives are intertwined with the death of the Roman Republic. While Roman society was very patriarchal and women had limited agency, their actions still affected events in the Roman world. Last time we focused on Octavia, sister to Augustus and member of the imperial family. Today, we focus on Livia, Augustus' wife, and a woman who has quite a reputation, depending on who you ask. Kind of like I said with Octavia last episode, there are many different lenses with which to view Livia. She lived a very charmed life and was in close proximity to many grand and many terrible events. She also basically outlived every member of the original imperial family and quite a few of the next generation. Some think she had something to do with many of these untimely deaths, and that is something we can unpack in a later episode. More on that later. While for previous episodes, I haven't gone out of my way to read any dedicated biographical books about these women, I actually did buy and read Livia, First Lady of Imperial Rome by Anthony A. Barrett. Why did I invest more in Livia compared to these other women? Well, it's because she's the wife of Augustus, and you guys know I do have a soft spot for Rome's first emperor. Fascist! A fascist is a fascist! Hey, hey, okay, okay, settle down. I have a soft spot for Augustus and wanted to learn more about his wife. And like I've been saying about these women, it's hard to truly understand Livia compared to understanding men like Julius Caesar, Mark Antony, and Augustus. Fewer surviving texts of women of this period by their contemporaries exist for us today. Also, Livia, like Fulvia, has been particularly dragged by some Roman historians and to a certain extent, the popular imagination, further muddying who the true Livia was. I'm actually going to do something a bit different for Livia's episode here and split it into two parts. For one, Livia's life conveniently has a couple of distinct phases, her life before marrying Octavian, her life with Octavian and his elevation to Augustus, and her life after the death of Augustus. This episode will end during her life with Augustus, Part two with Livia will explore other aspects of her life, like her relationship with her son Tiberius, the death of Augustus, and her historical reputation. Two, and for more personal reasons, holy smokes, this past month has been a struggle with teaching. This is my second year teaching, and in previous months I could recycle and update previous units I did, but I can't do that anymore, because this time last year we were doing online classes, which are nothing like what I have now. So I basically am back to making everything from scratch again. Three on this, I don't know how much you guys like 40-minute episodes, but 40-minute episodes take longer to produce and writing, narrating, and editing. My goal was to have this episode out in April, and I can't accomplish that without reducing how much I need to do this episode. So, to reduce that work and to get it out on time, that's why there will be a part one and part two here. I promise I'm not just trying to bump up download numbers, because as cool as that is to see go up, DOTRR is never going to be monetized, it's all out of pocket and for fun on my end. So this episode will cover about half of our girl Livia's life, and part two is going to cover the more darker aspects of it. I know many of you know, and this has been alluded to, that Livia dubiously has a darker reputation among some sources, which bleeds over into our modern cultural thoughts of her, and that perspective more so will be covered in part two, if that's really what you're here for. But with all that out of the way, let's look at a couple of parts of the life of Livia. There's a reason the first dynasty of the Roman Empire is called the Julio-Claudian dynasty. 
One half was Imperator Caesar Divifilius Augustus, Augustus who was adopted by Julius Caesar, ergo the Julian half. The Claudian part of the dynasty comes from Augustus's wife, Livia Drusilla of the distinguished Claudii family. The Claudii family has come up a few times in DOTRR, being possibly the most distinguished Roman family by the late Roman Republic. The infamous Claudius came from this family, and recent subject Fulvia married into the Claudii by her marriage to Claudius. Of course, our subject's name isn't Claudia, but Livia Drusilla. So how was Livia Drusilla related to this famous family? Well, Livia's mother was Elphidia, and her father was Marcus Livius Drusus Claudianus. Marcus Livius Drusus Claudianus was born into the Claudii family, but had been adopted by the Livii family as a boy. His name, Marcus Livius Drusus Claudianus, showed his connection to the Livii and Claudii families, much like when Octavius was adopted by Julius Caesar, his new full name was Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus, showing his connection to his biological and adoptive family. So that's our roundabout way to Livia Drusilla's name. Even if you wouldn't initially guess it, Livia belonged to the ultra-distinguished Claudii family. Livia was born in either 59 or 58 BCE. That meant Livia was born during, or in the wake of, Julius Caesar's first consulship, when he was mostly running the Republic with the first triumvirate and his allies Pompey, Magnus, and Crassus. Every Roman's life was drastically affected by the actions of Julius Caesar, and Livia would be no exception. Like many Roman women, we don't know much about their early lives until their first marriage. So who was Livia's first husband? Well, they were related. Livia married a roundabout cousin, Tiberius Claudius Nero. What you trying to say to me? There were two branches of the Claudii family. Livia came from the more famous, more politically active and actualized one. Tiberius Claudius Nero, despite actually having Claudius in his name, came from the less distinguished branch and was therefore moving up in the world by marrying his cousin. Two notes about Tiberius Claudius Nero. While he may have had bigger than average political ambitions and a heart of gold, he had lower than average political competence, or at least luck. Tiberius Nero had quite a streak of saddling himself to the wrong horse and picking losers in an era where victorious Romans were creating deathless to purge their enemies. We don't have a date on when Tiberius Nero married Livia, but given that their first son, also named Tiberius Claudius Nero, was born in 42 BCE, they would have been married at least a little bit before that. Livia would have been around 16 or 17 years old when little Tiberius was born, and her husband Tiberius Nero was likely in his 30s, which is not the grossest age difference mentioned on the show before, ugh. In 42 BCE, the young family was at a real fun point in Roman history. Little Tiberius was born a little after the Battle of Philippi, and Mark Antony and Octavian's victory over the assassins Brutus and Cassius, and consequently, also victory over Livia's father, Marcus Livius Drusus Claudianus, who committed suicide, rather than being captured by Octavian and Antony. We'll unpack that a lot more later. Before and after this point, Livia's husband Tiberius Nero made a lot of shifts and alliances to his own benefit. In an era of civil war every few years, and victory meaning seizing riches and power, and defeat possibly meaning exile or execution, Nero recognized. Historically, historical changes have come out of war. 
And let me tell you, Tiberius Nero tried his best to be on the losing side, I mean winning side of those wars. As Historius of Illus, possibly the greatest Roman history channel on YouTube describes in his awesome video on Sextus Poppy in the Sicilian War, Tiberius Nero had flipped a lot on positions throughout his life. Tiberius Nero was against Julius Caesar before Caesar invaded Rome from Gaul. It's treason. But after Caesar crossed the Rubicon, Tiberius Nero joined Caesar's cause. That was the winning cause. Long live the supreme leader. Yet after Caesar was assassinated by Brutus, Cassius, and the Funky Bunch, Tiberius Nero supported the assassins and tried to get them special privileges. I, I see this as an absolute win. When the members of the Second Triumvirate, Mark Antony and Octavian, defeated Brutus and Cassius, Tiberius Nero supported Mark Antony. This is me. This is how I win. Livia's own father, Marcus Livius Drusus Claudianus, had also supported Brutus and Cassius, yet committed suicide rather than be captured by Octavian and Antony after this battle. Maybe his death was based on principle, like Cato the Younger's, or maybe he didn't want to be tortured to death. But Marcus Livius would have had a 50-50 shot of making it out of Philippi alive. Mark Antony was notably kind and respectful to his captured enemies, many of whom would eventually serve him. Octavian, on the other hand, was more apt to torture his prisoners. And also would have been his future son-in-law someday. A while after the birth of their son, Livia's bumbling husband made another alliance change, siding with Lucius Antonius and Fulvia in their Perusian War, in their doomed attempt to cast Octavian out of power and take it for themselves. Everybody knows that I'm a bottom feeder. Tiberius Nero, Livia, and little Tiberius were actually besieged in Perugia with Lucius Antonius under siege by Octavian. The family was able to escape Octavian to Naples. At Naples, Tiberius Nero tried to incite a slave uprising. Introduce a little anarchy. Upset the established order and everything becomes chaos. I'm an agent of chaos. Like everything else Tiberius Nero tried, he failed. Octavian's forces took control of Naples, and the family fled to the rural countryside. Along the way, little Tiberius started to cry, and the family feared they would be found. Livia tried to calm him from a nurse, yet he still cried. Apparently another servant would be the one to soothe the young Tiberius on the run from the menacing Triumvir. Tiberius Nero actually had loose family connections to Sextus Pompey, Octavian's active enemy, and may have hoped to ally himself with him. Yet Sextus Pompey declined an alliance with, or to give help to, Tiberius Nero. While Tiberius Nero's strategy of I'm playing both sides so that I always come out on top had miraculously not got him killed for over a decade, it was around this time that Octavian put Tiberius Nero on the prescriptions list. Any Roman could kill him for a reward, and all of Tiberius Nero's wealth and property in Rome was now Octavian's. Tiberius Nero was safest away from Rome in exile. Livia by all rights could have returned to Rome with little Tiberius, yet stayed with her dumpster fire of a husband. Five foot five, she might rather die, never tell a lie, we like Bonnie Clyde. The Claudii family had connections to Sparta, yet the family would have to flee again for unknown reasons. To quote from Livia, first lady of Imperial Rome by Anthony A. Barrett, This time, it was by night, through a forest where a fire broke out. The family barely escaped. The event would have been especially memorable to Livia, who ended up with burning hair and a charred dress. 
in 40 AD. Uh, DOT, RR note, I low-key definitely think that Barrett screwed this up. This should be 40 BC rather than 40 AD, decades after Antony and Octavian were dead. This isn't shade at Anthony A. Barrett because he's way more accomplished in this field than me, and we all make mistakes. I just wanted to contribute to the discourse and correct misinformation. In 40 BC, Antony and Octavian settled their differences at the Peace of Brundisium, and the compact was sealed by the marriage of Antony and Octavian's sister, Octavia. And that's a callback. A further, even shorter-lived compact, the Treaty of Mycenaeum, was reached by the Triumvirs and Sextus Pompeius in mid-39 BC. It promised an amnesty to those who had sided with Sextus. Livia and her husband were thus able to return to Rome at the same time as Mark Antony. Livia's mood is not recorded, but it must have been somber enough. Her father was dead, and she must by now have recognized that her husband's star had started to set even before it had properly risen. I made a huge mistake. Tiberius Nero, Livia, and little Tiberius returned to Rome in the late summer of 39 BCE. And there was a little bun in the oven! Tiberius, Nero, and Livia would have a second child. Now in Rome, in some way, Livia caught Octavian's eye. Livia by now would have been about 20, Octavian around 24, and they'd be married less than a year after they met? While Livia had tolerated a lot of failure in her marriage to Tiberius Nero, electing to go into exile with him, and very much proving she was in fact 5'5", she might ride or die, the young Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus was one of the most powerful men in the Roman world, and this young Caesar wanted her. Well, hello, beautiful. Octavian had been planning to shave his beard for his birthday on September 23rd, as one does, and thereafter stayed well-shaved. As Anthony A. Barrett notes from Cassius Dio's account, Octavian wanted to look his best because he was already beginning to love Livia. So our boy Octavian was down bad. You are asking me to be rational. That is something I know I cannot do. The closer I get to you, the worse it gets. The thought of not being with you. I can't breathe. My heart is beating. You are in my very soul tormenting me. If you are suffering as much as I am, please tell me. If you follow your thoughts through to conclusion, it'll take us to a place we cannot go, regardless of the way we feel about each other. Then you do feel something. I will not give in to this. Well, you know it. It wouldn't have to be that way. We could keep it a secret. We'd be living a lie, one we couldn't keep even if we wanted to. I couldn't do that. Could you live like that? No. You're right. It would destroy us. So Livia and Octavian started an affair. It's hard to estimate when it truly began. It is possible that the pregnant Livia and her triumvir never consummated their affair until after their marriage, but that doesn't really sound like the restraint a couple of rich 20-somethings would possess. I can't believe we did this again. It was so stupid. Incredibly stupid. It's like we're making naughty sex even naughtier. This is really bad. We cannot pretend that this didn't happen. Or that it won't happen again. You think it's gonna happen again? You tell me. It's just a 
assume that it will happen again sometime. Right. Right. We just need to, you know, acknowledge this and uh, keep it private. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. This could get ugly. Well, it's like the Ten Commandments saying, you know, be true to thine own self and to thine own self. Be true. Yeah. Number seven. We'll just have to keep it a secret. Our secret. Our dirty little secret. I think I'm ready now. All right. Okay. Additionally, Octavian had taken a page from his adoptive father Julius Caesar's playbook, which was sleeping with a lot of women. I learned it by watching you. Octavian had been living it up as the most powerful man in Rome for a while, and sleeping with whomever he wanted, although the cover story was that he slept with senators' wives to learn their secrets. It's just good business. For his part, Octavian was unhappy in his marriage to Scribonia. He had married the older woman because she was related to his current nemesis, Sextus Pompey, and hoped this political marriage could bring a fruitful peace. That didn't pan out, but Octavian's only biological child, Julia, was born of this marriage. Octavian promptly divorced Scribonia as soon as Julia was born, a little after he met and likely started his affair with Livia. Octavian also went out of his way to let Scribonia know that he hated her bitter personality. Uh, and D-O-T-R-R is really gonna earn its self-described PG-13 rating this episode because Octavian and Livia's whole affair while pregnant vibe would prove to be a horrible example for Julia, who once infamously said, I take on a passenger only when the ship's hold is full. I learned it by watching you. As a further motivator for Octavian to lust after the beautiful Livia, Livia came from the prestigious, old, aristocratic Claudii family. While Octavian was the most powerful man in Rome at the present, he didn't know how long his reign would last. Octavian came from a wealthy, yet undistinguished plebeian family. His posthumous adoption by Julius Caesar gave him a start in politics, and he successfully navigated to the top echelon of power in Roman politics at an extraordinarily young age, and marriage to a prestigious member of the Claudii family could help him stay there. But at the most basic and base level, Livia was beautiful, intelligent, charming, full of wit, and tenacity. Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus was as ambitious, confident, and far more powerful than even Julius Caesar had been at this point in his life. So, Octavian and Livia's attraction and or affair probably began when Octavian was married to Scribonia or shortly after it ended. Their attraction and or affair lasted for the rest of Livia's marriage to Tiberius Nero, and mere months after returning to Rome, Livia divorced Tiberius Nero in the fall of 39 BCE. Tiberius Nero accepted the divorce, yet was in no position to deny the triumvir. Now that Livia was single... No ring. Octavian was free to marry her, and the two were betrothed. Whereas normally a Roman woman had to wait 10 months before marrying again, so that if she was pregnant by her first husband, a child born within those 10 months would clearly be his, the rules were ignored for the most powerful man in Rome and his bride-to-be. Besides, everyone knew that Livia was already pregnant by Tiberius Nero and would have been pregnant for the duration she had known Octavian. While there were rumors that the child was Octavian's, it's mathematically impossible given Livia could not have been in Rome when the child was conceived. 
Their betrothal only lasted a few months, and in January 38 BCE, just a few days after Tiberius Nero's second son, Nero Claudius Drusus, was born in Octavian's home, Livia and Octavian had their extremely unpopular wedding. During this period, Octavian's truce with Sextus Pompey had broken down, and Sextus Pompey's rogue navy was disrupting food shipments to Rome, and the city was starving. Of course, the Triumvir and his associates didn't have to worry about their next meal, but the excess at his wedding was bad PR. Octavian dressed as the god Apollo, and his other guests were dressed as other gods. Basking in such gluttony was distasteful in the starved city. Additionally, given that Livia's father had committed suicide rather than be captured by Octavian and Antony, Livia didn't have a man readily available to give her away to her new husband. It would be her ex-husband, Tiberius Nero, to give her away to Octavian. Look at us. Hey, look at us. Look at us. Huh? Who would have thought? Not me. While poor Tiberius Nero was hanging out at this wedding, a slave boy dressed as a cupid, trained to entertain guests with dark humor and sharp jokes, asked Livia, who was with Octavian, Why are you over here when your husband is over there? Pointing at Tiberius Nero. And to deconstruct this a bit, we know with hindsight that Livia and Octavian had a rock-solid marriage. Octavian became Augustus and would have all the prestige he wanted and definitely could have divorced Livia for a younger woman, yet they stayed together for the remainder of Augustus's life. But trying to look at this from Livia's perspective, why would she willingly marry Octavian in the first place? She was marrying the man who had indirectly tormented her for her entire adult life. She would have been around 16 when her father, who was fighting Octavian, committed suicide. She would have been around 18 when Tiberius Nero got them involved in the Peruzine War and thereafter exiled from Rome. Yet at 20, Livia returned to Rome and entered into a relationship with her Caesar that lasted 51 years. Like, hypothetically, I don't think that a woman would want to date me if I was a direct reason for the death of her father. Besides that other stuff, maybe the most obvious answer is that Livia's a gigantic gold digger who seduced the most powerful man in Rome for a life of luxury despite the hardships he caused her, but given that I once got to roleplay as Octavian and that I like Livia, I'd like to think it goes past that. We can't be flies on the walls of their household. We don't know the emotional connection the two forged and shared. We don't have Livia's diary where she might have talked about mixed emotions or feelings towards Octavian. We just have the public-facing side of their relationship and history together. They had a fast and furious affair and a quick marriage that lasted longer than most marriages today. It's also worth noting that Livia was only 20 years old, which is insane because speaking as a 24-year-old, 20-year-olds are not as smart as they think they are, yet the 20-year-old Livia made the life-altering decision, marrying the man who got her father killed, and this decision would transform her life for the better. There's a perspective where this was not a consensual relationship, but given what we do know about their relationship, that doesn't seem to be the case. Livia was as willing to have an affair as Octavian was. To end this tangent, I have no idea why Livia would be interested in Octavian, who had, even if unintentionally, done a lot to wrong her. But given the evidence before us, Livia was apparently attracted to Octavian as he was to her. And the rest is history. In 35 BCE, four years into her marriage with Octavian, Livia and her sister-in-law Octavia would be given honors by the Roman Senate. The women were given the legal power to control their own finances, whereas normally their husbands or fathers would be in control of them. 
Additionally, Livia and Octavia were made sacrosanct like Roman tribunes, meaning it would be a religious and state offense to harm or even insult them. This would be the first time this was offered to women, certainly elevating them in Roman society. Additionally, statues of Livia and Octavia were allowed to be built, which had only ever previously been granted to Cornelia, mother of the Gracchi. In 33 or 32 BCE, Tiberius Claudius Nero died, officially bringing his sons, Tiberius and Drusus, into Octavian's household. The 10-year-old Tiberius was betrothed to Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa's daughter. This simultaneously showed that Livia's son was important to Octavian, given that he was engaged to his best friend's daughter. Simultaneously, it would help elevate his friend Agrippa, who would have a familial connection to the Claudii family. It was also around this time that the Roman Republic entered freefall as the Second Triumvirate disintegrated. Now I've talked a lot about the final civil war of the Roman Republic. There isn't much to say about this from Livia's perspective, as Livia was not so a focal point as Octavia was. To be sure, Livia's name was dragged through the mud a bit by Mark Antony and his allies. While Octavian and Livia had quite a successful relationship, their very sordid affair at the start of their relationship blackened Octavian's name, who was accused of abusing his power to steal another man's wife, which was kind of valid. But that being said, there's only so many times a man can talk about the decline and fall of Mark Antony before he loses his mind, and I am at about that point. I'm gonna lose my freaking mind! and possibly spoiling our next woman of the Roman world we're going to talk about, uh, I will need to talk about the decline and fall of Mark Antony at least one more time. Suffice it to say, Octavian and Antony's relationship broke down, first by slinging propaganda at each other, then by mobilizing armies to fight each other. Octavian and his boy Agrippa would defeat Antony and Cleopatra, who would both ultimately commit suicide. Octavian had no more apparent Roman rivals to his level of power, nor an active external threat in the form of someone like Cleopatra. The path was cleared for Octavian to become Augustus, and for his coronation as emperor, I mean his confirmation of the power of the princeps. Augustus had a walk on a nice edge and how he flexed his unlimited power and prestige. While he was the de facto emperor of the Roman Empire, he had a whole song and dance of how he still humbly served the Roman Republic as its ultimate servant, and was entrusted with temporary extraordinary powers that should expire every few years, yet were always renewed. So, naming this episode Livia First Empress of Rome is a little misleading. Noise! Deceptions! Because even if Augustus was Rome's de facto first emperor, and Olivia was Rome's de facto first empress, she definitely couldn't flex the trappings of an empress, much less a queen. If anything, Augustus and Livia intentionally tried to underwhelm the Roman public as to their wealth. As Rome was transitioning from republic to empire, neither Livia nor Augustus had a precedent of any previous imperial family to guide them. And while we know that Livia and Augustus would die natural deaths, they didn't know that. It was possible that if they didn't play their cards right, at some point, they would face an insurrection or assassination like Julius Caesar, especially if they were blatant about their power and position in Roman society. They had to tread lightly as to not rock the boat of Roman society too hard as it had been seriously rocked already. So, whereas Livia and Augustus had special honors, powers, and were unfathomably rich, they did not possess jeweled encrusted crowns. Livia and the imperial family also had to walk that knife's edge of being the model Roman family, yet not be a royal family, not flex their power and prestige in such a way that made it obvious as to how much power and prestige they possessed. And I am willing to bet that if you look up cognitive dissonance in the dictionary, you will find a picture of our friend Augustus. 
Livia was never recognized as empress, as Augustus was never recognized as emperor. While they owned multiple homes like most of the Roman upper class, they were not terribly ostentatious or unimaginably grander than their fellow aristocrats. Their homes even had below-average quality furniture to show their modesty and simplicity, disguising all the power invested in Augustus. Additionally, Augustus wore simple clothing, supposedly made by the women of his household, though it's possible that their servants manufactured his clothes. It's all that song and dance to show that Augustus is not as powerful as he truly is, even if everyone did realize he was the one running the government. And this whole clothing example thing really reminds me of, like, seeing Mark Zuckerberg or Jeff Bezos in, like, casual t-shirts and stuff. They look like regular people, except, uh, they are definitely not. And maybe society would be better if they got taxed. Livia continued to be a model wife by the standards of the Roman Republic and a model member of the imperial family that led Rome. While she had special honors, Livia was too, and successfully did, exemplify the standards of a patriarchal society like Rome. In a way, us not having a ton of information on Livia and her actions in life is proof that she was doing her job well. Many Romans at the time would have been disturbed if Livia had been a very visible and very active in running any part of Rome society. Instead, Livia was a quiet, obedient, supportive wife who made clothes for her husband. Livia's quiet, norm-core presentation to Roman society, despite being the wife of the princeps, was very palatable for Roman society, and she was celebrated as a model of feminine virtue in Roman society. Her great-grandson, Rome's third emperor Caligula, remembered Livia as a clever woman with a sharp mind. Yet for the most part, she hid that part of herself from the Roman masses, who would have been unnerved by such a cunning woman in such an elevated, unprecedented position. Of course, in the early parts of the Roman Empire, Livia was not actually the most visible woman of the imperial family. That fell to her sister-in-law and the emperor's sister, Octavia. Octavia would have been the more public face of the feminine side of the imperial family up until she became more withdrawn after the death of her son Marcellus in 23 BCE. Despite Livia successfully playing the role of a supportive wife, it was understood Livia could modestly influence her husband. Augustus spent about half his reign in the city of Rome and the other half traveling his empire. Livia on occasion would travel with her husband. While Augustus and Livia visited the island of Samos in the winter of 20 to 19 BCE, Livia apparently prevailed in influencing Augustus to free the island of Samos from the rule of Pergamon. In another example, one Cornelius Cinna, grandson of Pompey Magnus, plotted to assassinate Augustus and was discovered. Augustus's natural reaction was to punish Cinna, yet he was uncertain, especially considering Cinna's family. Also, he didn't know if being harsh would inspire further plots against him. Livia advised her husband to show a quality of mercy. She pointed out that he was right to think that being harsh could incite more plots against him, and by doing the opposite, he could enhance his already magnanimous reputation. To quote from Anthony A. Barrett, She assured Augustus that opposition was inevitable to a figure of his importance. He was bound to displease some, and even those who had no axe to grind would aspire to his position. Then, he called Cinna, and according to Seneca, they spoke for about two hours. Augustus rehearsed the favors he had bestowed on him and the benefits Cinna had received and finished by offering friendship, an offer that the other could hardly refuse. In fact, he became one of Augustus's most loyal followers and even received the consulship. On his death, he bequeathed his estate in its entirety to the emperor. Livia's advice proved to be sound.
Around 17 BCE, Augustus would controversially introduce laws to regulate morals in Rome, which he saw were degrading. Ironically, this included criminalizing Adultery. While senators clowned on Augustus, joking that he should know something about those crimes, nothing actually damaged his reputation, nor was Livia criticized at all despite them both engaging in adultery at the start of their relationship some 30 years previous. Livia remained a paragon of Roman feminine virtue, and even if it could justifiably be called into question, no one publicly did. This is where we'll conclude part one on Livia. In total, Livia up to this point had already lived an extraordinary life, surviving extraordinary hardships, and marrying the man who caused a lot of them. She would be elevated to Rome's de facto first empress, yet would have to walk a fine line with her husband in the new Roman Empire. Because you're mine, I walk the line. Yet successfully walk it she did, being a modest model of morality for Roman mores. I feel really clever coming up with that. There's a lot more to cover in our next episode. Things get a bit darker. We'll examine Livia's trials and tribulations with her son Tiberius. I have a beating heart. A character. A mind and a will of my own. I am not just a symbol. I can lead not just by wearing a uniform or by cutting a ribbon, but by showing people who I am. Mommy, I have a voice. Let me let you into a secret. No one wants to hear it. The death of her husband Augustus. Up until age 18, most women have a daddy keeping tabs on any man she goes out with. But once she gets bigger, daddy's no longer around. But danger still is. The life she leads the Dowager Empress. And that's when Livia realized she might just like living alone after all. And her historical reputation. Uh, good lord, I think next episode is gonna be, uh, long. Also, those little teasers are gigantic exaggerations of the truth, just so you don't get your hopes up too much. Thank you very much for listening. If you would like to uh, engage with the show, I am pretty, unfortunately, active on Twitter, at D-O-T-R-R-Pod. Uh, also, I don't really plug this very much, but if you maybe dropped a rating on Apple Podcasts, it would be very much appreciated. I saw some stat, like uh, most podcasts do not have more than 13 ratings or something like that. And I think DOTRR is up to 15 right now, which is very cool. I appreciate all of you who did, but if you haven't and would like to drop one, it'd be appreciated. Uh, and thank you. So hopefully in May, if teaching does not kill me, we will find out what happens in the rest of Livia's life. And I know if you came here for the darker, juicier stuff, maybe you're leaving this episode a little disappointed, but I hope to make that up to you 
next month in May. Until then, friends, Romans, countrymen, I hope you enjoyed the show. Out there, I think you still can. I I understand if you unsubscribe.